morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I'm very happy that we get to hear from one of my favorite people and writers. I got to have Shilpi Suneja in a class with me, and she was so brilliant and so good that I just love that we can I can call her one of my colleagues now. She is going to be coming out with her debut novel, House of Caravans, in September. Good morning, Shilpi. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you for having me. And Shilpi has a very fat-cheeked baby that is not letting her sleep. So I have woken Shilpi up <laughs> the fierce amount of sleep that she has had. And the baby is so fat-cheeked. I was like, oh my gosh, this baby must be devouring everything. But very cute. Um, so Shilpi's going to do her best today. Um, all you new mothers, I'm sure you can... Um, Empathize. Okay, so Shilpi Suneja was born in Kampur, India, India. At the age of 15, she moved with her parents to a tiny village in North Carolina. She later earned an MA in English from NYU, and she actually has two MFAs. She has one from UMass Boston, and then she got another one from BU just because she's Shilpi and she likes to know everything in the world there is to know about writing. And because of this, she has won fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Mas Massachusetts Cultural Council for pages in House of Caravan. So she's done very well with this book already before it's even gotten out of the um, out on the race. So her first novel, again, House of Caravan, is about the long shadow of the Indian partition in 1947. It's her grandfather's story of migration from Lahore to Kampur, and it will be released from Milkweed Editions, which is a great smaller press out of Minneapolis in September of 2023. Okay, Shopi, give us an overview of this book. Now, I worked a little bit with Shopi in this book. Absolutely brilliant. She's changed it so much because <laughs> she's a fierce reviser. Um, so give us an overview of this book and hopefully things that I say about the book won't be wrong because I'm remembering a previous version. So go ahead, Shilpi. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for um, giving space to these brilliant books and just being in company of them is just, uh, it's amazing fellowship. Um, so House of Caravans is, I guess you could say it's about sibling rivalry at the core. The backbone of the book is. Um, is about these two brothers, uh, Chote Nanu, Bade Nanu, which I guess translates to older grandfather, younger grandfather, um, which again, the name choices signal that it's being told by um, the the grand grandson of one of these uh, brothers. Um, so it starts with uh, World War II and goes all the way to September 11, 9-11. And in doing and capturing that kind of scope, uh, what I intended to do was to tell the story of the long shadow of the partition, uh, which is a historical event where the British, when they left South Asia, they divided India into um, India and Pakistan. Um, about a million people lost their lives, 13 million people lost their homes and migrating across a new fledgling border. 
Um, so it's that story. It's the story of um, uh, our family story that uh, my mother has told me in um, bits and pieces. Uh, so it kind of captures um, a lot of different stories, starting, as I said, in the 1940s and going all the way down from the 80s, 90s to 9-11. Um, um, and it's got siblings and, and all kinds of love stories. Um, so dare I say it's a smorgasbord or as a reviewer recently called it on Twitter, kind of a tapestry of stories. Beautiful um, tapestry. It is very rich and complex, but you just get swept up in it. Now, because it's a family story, have your family members read the book? Uh, my fans, they already hate me for <laughs> yeah. for for robbing our family jewels, which are basically just you know stories of who hated whom and why. <laughs> it's such a good book, and um. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go ahead and read the first pages. But I do remember when you were working on this book, why you thought it was so important is because you didn't think this time period in this area had been written about enough, correct? Yeah. Also, you just you just kind of grow up with this kind of uh, obsession, and you want to get it out of your system. <laughs> and also for me, it was a learning process. So I wanted to learn where my own sense of rootlessness came from, um, and when I started talking about myself um I realized um I was actually talking about my grandfather so I wanted to understand why those two things are linked and you know it's in our DNA these stories are in our DNA you don't know the connection until you put it down on paper and writing wow. is not only therapeutic it's such a great way to learn and explore your history that um you haven't been told and um all that research you know it it's useful. <laughs> it's useful yeah. to do this kind of work to kind of know that, okay, this is where I come from. This is what happened to our people. And this is why I feel the way I do. Um, okay. Yeah. Great. And that, that sense of rootlessness and, and to, to learn more about yourself and be able to understand yourself. Yes, absolutely. I think historical fiction is so powerful in so many ways, and that's definitely one of them. Okay. Let's hear from your prologue, which is a prologue, by the way, folks, that Shilpi did not used to have in the version that I had seen before, but I love this prologue. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. All right. Um, prologue, August 1947. Two days after the birth of the nation, Chotenanu races towards the Lahore Amritsar Lahore Express. But before he can shove his way inside, the cargo staring back from the benches stops him dead in his tracks. He won't be taking the train to free India. For once, he is glad for his lateness. Not glad, no. For the most part, Chodenanu is numb. But in a small chamber of his heart, he is pleading with a fate that has spared him once to spare him one more time. He brackets the golden-haired boy against his body, covers the boy's eyes. But it's too late. They have both seen a sight they will never forget. Mothers and fathers, wives and husbands, grandparents and children, especially the children, even the ones in the wombs, all undone. No one stirs, no one is left alive. The train is no longer a train, but a tidal wave of blood. In Punjab, the land of five rivers, a sixth is born. The boy's blue-green-blue eyes demand an answer, but Chodinanu has no words to speak, his throat closed as though over a chicken bone. 
The boy's skin burns with fever. His body shivers like a telegraph needle poised on a piece of bad news. My little boy. Chodenaru bury, buries the child's nose in his neck. A cricket trapper, all knees and sprightly on most occasions. The boy feels like dead weight. His bones dense with fear. Chotenano feels he, can he could crumble under the weight of a child. His own short legs, bulked from jail labor, won't stop wobbling. On the second night of their escape, he runs once again, abandoning the man-made routes of railway lines and roads towards the lavender and honey pre-dawn sky. In the distance, there are fields of wheat, corn, millet, mustard. No limbs, no cut-off noses, no wide-open eyes. But to leave the city, they must traverse it again. The old mall road, the civil station, the hundred windows of Nido's hotel. One rainy afternoon under the blue awnings, the boy had heard Judy Garland on the gramophone. He presses Chodenanu's finger. Do you remember? Chodenanu, who remembers, presses back. The city is no longer theirs. New things swallow old ones. Stone colonnades disappear behind posters of the National Army which disappear behind banners of the new party that has birthed the new nation. It is best to say goodbye and move on. A while later, they reach the refugee camp. We are safe now, Chotenanu tells the boy. We are among people of our sort, waiting to cross the border to the other side. There is comfort in numbers, he tells himself. There is comfort in the thousand canvas tents, pegs, pegged in an orderly fashion, as far as the eye can see. This is what the mountains look like up close, he tells the child, a euphemism, a lie. Rich men in cravats wait their caravans of cars, haggle over jeeps for hire. The poor haggle over mules. They hear cattle wailing, utensils clanging, people everywhere. The refugees stare at the golden-haired boy with interest. Chotenanu pulls up his shirt, wraps the child around his frame, hides the boy under the shirt. He fears the living more than the dead. In the distance, he sees army trucks, six in all, each vehicle surrounded by crowds clamoring to get on. The fittest push through, the men haul themselves on roofs, the women press inside. On the roof of one of the vehicles, like a star in the night sky, Chodenanu spots two pale hands waving, his brothers. Praji, Chodenanu shouts, beating through the crowds towards the trucks. Wait for me, don't leave me behind. From across the field, Barinanu sees his brother, all of him intact, his wild hair, his jaunty shuffle, his rumpled oversized shirt. The sound that escapes Barinanu is an infinite laugh. His body laughs with the joy of an insomniac waking from a deep sleep. The little fool with his wayward ways and poetic disposition is alive, and Barinanu aches to hold him and tell him that all, is, all that is trivial and treacherous and vital in the world. Chotenanu pushes through the crowd. The caravan of peasant men and women, city dwellers and merchants, echoes and shouts, but Barinanu's yell shuts them up. Let him through. That is my brother come back from the dead, went to prison for the country while the whole lot of you slept. Chotenanu elbows his way forward, both arms wrapped around the child, clinging to his body. Barinanu's hungry hands reach for his brother. I thought the Englishwoman swallowed you whole. Chodenanu covers the child's ears, the only surviving memory of the woman he loved. Loves. Who is that? Barinanu points to the boy's golden hair poking through, the ch ch through Chodenanu's shirt. No one, Chodenanu climbs onto the truck. He pleads with the passengers to make room. The caravan curses even as it squeezes and coils like a boa constrictor. 
Chodanalu lifts his shirt to reveal a boy clinging to his chest. Hariyom, an old man says, both in shock and as a benediction to guard their journey. Chotananu settles the child between his legs, puts his hands over his golden hair. There is nothing to see here, his eyes say to the men around him. There is nothing to see, he wants to tell his brother. But Bareranu isn't easily deterred. Whose child have you stolen? The question causes the boy to dig his head into his protector's chest. Chotananu pats his head. In times of worry, we pray. La ilaha, the boy mutters. Muhammadur Rasulullah. A young man with a nascent unibrow spits onto the ground. Abhai, this truck is headed to India, he tells Shodenanu, as if he doesn't know. You want to get off at the next stop. Some of the men nod in agreement. Best of Chodenanu and the boy and their prayers remain on this side of the border. More men chime and chime their displeasure. Only fair for Muslim prayers to stay in Pakistan and Hindu ones to go on to India. They roll up their sleeves in indignation, ready to chuck Chodananu and the boy off the truck. Below them, the driver, oblivious to the quarrel on the roof, shifts the engine to a higher gear. Baranano grabs his brother's wrist. Who is this boy? Who are you throwing your life away for? The boy has a nose like the nib of a pen, eyes that are blue and green, a faint, carefree brow. He bears no physical resemblance to the wide-nosed, big-lipped Chote, his brow perpetually knotted like he's withholding a grievance. Why at such a time when empathy costs more than diamonds, Barinanu wonders, would his brother give it away to the first English child he found on the streets? Little boy, who is your father? Where is your mother? The question brings the boy to tears. In, a, in as calm a voice as he can manage, Chodinanu tells his brother, this is my son, do what you like. The caravan grows restless. Are we dropping off the Muslims back in Pakistan? Barinanu's blood curdles. He doesn't approve of men using religion as a spear, but neither does he approve of kidnapping. Nobody lays a finger on him, he warns the fanatics. He yanks his brother's ear. Don't lie to me. Whose child have you stolen? Tell me or I will toss you off myself. Chotinanu bl blows air through his mouth to feel less afraid. Never, he shouts back. Well then, see if I care what they do to you. Their truck hurtles towards the new country. Yellow fields of mustard... Stretch as far as the eye can see. Food is days away. Shelter and roof another 500 miles southeast. And for Barinanu, my grandfather, empathy for the granduncle will take many years to manifest. At that moment, he makes, as he makes his way out of a new Pakistan and into a new India, all he can see is the golden-haired boy. The child has propelled the brothers to the brink of war and stands in between their undoubtedly mottled future and their quickly evaporating past. Okay, wonderful. And I mean, this is a perfect, it seems a perfect place to begin because you're beginning with this boy and that even boarding the train is, is basically the beginning of the war between the brothers and the misunderstanding between the brothers and everything that the brothers hold. And um, for readers, just notice that she introduces her first person narrator at the very, in the very last paragraph of this prologue. Um, and for Barnanu, my grandfather, empathy for my grand uncle will take many years to manifest. Though, as you said before, we kind of already know that it is the grandchild because of the way he's referring to both Chotenanu and Barnanu. Um, but that's, again, much more direct. And then we get 
actually, if you look on the pages that you can see, um, I posted the link to the pages in the podcast notes. Um, she goes to August 2002. And then we go to a firmer first person voice. I came home to Kampur because Barananu had died. I kept thinking of his last uh, days throughout the journey, et cetera. Um, so you originally did not have a prologue like this. Where did you, um, how did you come to this prologue? Yeah, so I came to this prologue because after many years of working on this book, I realized um, it needed to be very, very clearly about the long shadow of the partition. Um, so partition being that, uh, I don't know, I don't think it should be called inciting incident, but it is, that's what the book is about. And I wanted to give the reader a little taste, a moose bush, I guess, of uh, the violence, uh, because, you know, everyone is, you know, talking about partition, aka violence. Um, so I wanted to kind of give a little taste of that uh, in scene form um, to signal that this is the kind of book that's what they're going to be reading. But I also wanted to signal that it's not just about the partition and all of its violence. It's it's also about the retrospect of it, the remembering of it, the stories that people tell about it, the consequences that have happened over the decades uh, because of it. So um, that little, you know, my grandfather, um, that one word, I hope, is <laughs> doing a lot of work for me in the sense that signaling yeah. to the reader that, OK, here's, you know, this very graphic portrayal of what happened, um, but it's also about um the stories that are going to be shared about it. So yeah, and I think it transitions us very, very well into the first chapter. It kind of carries us as a bridge into the first chapter. Just that that little use of the of the first person there, um, and how we've moved to yeah, my grandfather versus you know Bar Nanu or Chod Nanu. Um, and so I I think this early incident is probably, and you can agree or disagree that the novel's wound because and it's also the country's wound in many ways um that's what's so fascinating about this book is that it's the divided country but then it's also these divided brothers so it works metaphorically and literary um literally just so in step um and then this is the wound that everyone has to recover from and they're always going back to it and they're always thinking of it i mean do you i mean it seems to have that it seems to to carry that weight of 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 psychic, I don't know, deconstruction <laughs> uh, throughout the throughout the whole book. Um, do you go back to now? I know the reason why it took Shopi a little while to get this book out is because it's so complex in terms of the history you're trying to cover and in terms of the points of view. Um, and so how often do you go back and forth in time throughout the book? And how did you figure that out? So I uh, adopted a parallel narrative. So two timelines, uh, the bulk of the story is set in the 40s. And then there's uh, sh much shorter pages um, that are set in 2002. Um, and so the timeline for the 40s, you know, I move sometimes a year later or you know, just a day later. But the 2002 timeline is basically just uh, a matter of a few days, wherein people come to this big house that they share, um, tell each other stories, reveal secrets. Um, so I thought that that kind of uh, 
an alternating structure would work well. And I kind of stole it from uh, The God of Small Things. Um, that book also has this parallel structure of, um, I think it does, right? <laughs> it's been so long since I read it. But yeah, I yeah. remember that, yeah, like the present day story takes place in just a matter of a few hours or just a day or so when Esther and Rahel are meeting each other after a long time. And then the the other story is set in the 60s, I think, right? When um, yeah, so small, um, yeah. It's been a while since I read it, but- <laughs> And so there's a lot of books that do parallel timelines, even like three timelines. I think Julie Carrick Dalton's book was doing that. Um, you, however, your original version of this book primarily took place more in the contemporary world. So it sounds like, and, and I think I think this is interesting as we work on novels, it sounds like the history was just pulling at you and pulling at you and pulling at you. And you finally said, okay, I'm listening. I'm going to do it. Exactly. I mean, that process that that is just very difficult because you had to give up a huge swath of the present day story yeah so again like beginning writer first book right like you're still learning how to manage all that and um and I got a little too ambitious like people I met early on kind of told me I, th I think you might have said this too that you know it's too much <laughs> try to simplify um but I have you count your scenes I made yeah. you, I made you put all your scenes on a note card yes and, was, like, like, and it was only then I think that yeah. you're like oh my god I have a lot of scenes yes uh, uh, and I think this is uh something that Lisa Borders also teaches in her class and I think when she would co-teach with you she said uh I remember this so clearly that a novel is give or take 20 scenes <laughs> oh <laughs> big, big scenes yeah exactly so I'm like 20 I how about 100 <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and it's but it's just so hard with historical fiction and with with the complexity I mean I my agent faults me all the time he, he's always saying Michelle you don't have to put everything in every single book and it's just hard when Yes, you are the sort of person and thinker that just likes to involve everything all at once, and your brain is constantly reaching out to other things. And um, yeah, and Ha Jin said something similar too, or I think he gave conflicting advice. Um, but I think we, I remember him saying clearly in his novella writing class that you don't have to put everything in your first book. Um, and he would get very mathematical about things too. So he, he, he's, he's such an amazing genius. Like he will look at you know the first um pages that you're supposed to turn into his class and say okay th these are five books or these are you know like he will weigh the words and tell you um that you don't you know you can uh, but then I think he he also said that you know the first book needs to do a lot so I kind of to me that was conflicting advice so I kind of went away with okay the first book has to contain a lot of things but not everything <laughs> So however you interpret a lot, that. it has to have great effect, possibly, yes. but without containing the world. Um, so but I think, though, with all your revisions, you you have gotten to that because there's so much tension here in the opening. I mean, obviously, Chatuna Nunu is running for his life. There's also this golden hair boy that has blue green eyes. And we're like, what is this kid doing in the middle of India during this time? So that's very strange. And it launches a mystery. Mm -hmm. um, and you have this horrible image of when he looks into the car of the train um, and you describe it like this. Um, 
It's too late. The boy has seen it. They have both seen a sight they will never forget. Mothers and fathers, wives and husbands, grandparents and children, especially the children, even the ones in the wombs, all undone. No one stirs. No one is left alive. The train is no longer a train, but a tidal wave of blood. In Punjab, the land of five rivers, a six is born. What I love about this is it's actually not gratuitously disgusting and grisly and violent. I mean, obviously, we are describing a scene which is the horror of horrors however your your treatment of it looks at it it's honest um but it's not enjoying how horrible it is um and then and then you also turn it to the train is no longer a train in punjab the land of five rivers the six is born it's almost like we're the narrative is looking away as well even though we're allowed to see it i think i think that's a really powerful use of description of something that's really quite awful that you have to show us in some way you can't leave it out you can't just say he looked in the train and it was horrible you. you also change you since this is omniscient um she does something very good in moving between um the uncle's point of view to the grandfather's point of view so the grandfather sees his brother um and he says, on the roof of one of the vehicles, like a star in the night sky, Chote Nanu spots two pill hands waving his big brothers. Paji Chote Nanu shouts, beating through the crowds towards the trucks. Wait for me. Don't leave me behind. And then we transition into Bari Nanu's uh, point of view with the omniscient point of view helping us. From across the field, Bari Nanu sees his brother, all of him intact, his wild hair, his jaunty shuffle, his rumpled oversized shirt. And for the rest of the, so you spend about half and a half in, in the uncle's point of view and then the grandfather's point of view. And for the rest of this, we're in the grandfather's point of view. And, and that is the perfect pivot because Chote Nanu sees his brother, the brother sees him, and then we're in the brother's mind. Um, did you always have that? Did that happen naturally to you? Because in terms of craft, that's how you do it. Um, that's I would show this as an example to people. Yeah, I, I wanted to have multiple points of view. And for the prologue, it just made sense to have uh, both Chote Nanu and Bare Nanu sort of share the stage. Um, and yeah, instead of having just, you know, one person tell what's going on, I thought it would be more effective to see things from um, the character's point of view. And it's economically done. It doesn't take very long. And, very economically done. and I think the readers can follow it without getting confused. The The white space helps. <laughs> well, you aren't head hopping. And then and again, that because Chote Nanu sees his brother and then the brother sees him. And then that's how you move us between the points of views is why it's not confusing. Um, and that's and that's why it's not a head hop. And then you and then you stay put in the grandfather's point of view, you don't keep going back and forth, which I think some people might want to do. And that is when it would be confusing and when we would lose sympathy for both points of views. Um, okay, everyone, I'm going to, I feel like we could keep talking about this forever. She'll be, but I'm going to have to let her go. And I'm going to have to let everyone else get to their writing uh, desk. Everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. And you can also find all our past episodes. We have so many brilliant writers and thinkers talking about writing and helping you out um, in our past two writing challenges. And you can find those on a Substack page when you look back through. And you can find those on um, all on our podcast and your favorite podcast platform. Okay.
Now, the last question, this is a question that everyone knows I've been ending with, but Shilpi had a great response. So my end question has been, what advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? And Shilpi said, oh, but it's so subjective. How can you give advice when it's so subjective? Which is true, which is absolutely true. Each book determines its own beginning um, and lays the rules for its own beginning. So then I thought, okay, Shilpi, what would you tell the younger Shilpi of how to get her first pages right? To that, I would say your book has a core um, and you have to find it. <laughs> and the core could either be historical fiction or contemporary or kind of both. Uh, but as soon as you find the core, um, you will know what kind of a flash, what kind of an image or scene you want the readers to first pick up on uh, when they for, when they are first introduced to your to your book. So, and it might not be the core that you thought it was going to be at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. So, how did you change? Like when you started this book, what did you think was the core of the book? Uh, so. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that because uh, I wanted to write this, you know, for me, what is a typical South Asia book or set in India book where, you know, someone is coming, returning home on the train. I love trains. <laughs> so that was always the beginning. I was so wedded to it. Um, but I realized, no, it's not about, that's not the place to start because like I said, it is, the book is about partition. So I have to give the readers a taste of that, that violent wound, as you said, so that needed, I mean, although I found a way to put a train in, <laughs> in the prologue as well. Right. So, yeah, but yeah, so I had to figure out that this is a book about the partition and I need to um, create a sort of mantelpiece um, of that, of that partition of that wound um, as the beginning. <laughs> it can take a while to find that. It can take some exploring. It can just be an awake to what's going on on the page instead of it just powering through with what your initial idea was. And also, um, how did you discover your first person? Because that's you you talked about, well, this is my family story. Um, uh, when I think of myself, I see myself in my grandfather um, or I see my grandfather in me. But this is you're, you're, the first person you chose is not is not a female. You actually changed the gender. So how did you choose the first person that was going to then be the lens onto the story? Yeah, so I think so because so there's two siblings, Ela and Karan. Karan is the the brother, um, and he has stayed in the U.S. for a while, and he's returning home to kind of you know discover all these stories, and he's the narrator. Um, he always made, I guess he made sense later on because I, I think Ela was narrating yeah, <laughs> when I was yeah. first writing um, and I just couldn't let Curran speak. And then I think, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I don't remember, but I think it made sense for him to be the narrator because, you know, I've lived in the U.S. and if I come back to India, like how, what kind of a temperament would I have if I had, if I had a sibling uh, so I kind of tapped into that and it just made thematic sense for me to have him narrate rather than Ela because um, she hasn't left India and I cannot relate to that, unfortunately. Right. So. so he basically is you um, and he has that greater perspective and that wider view. 
the male version, I guess. <laughs> the, male, the male version of Shopee. Okay, everyone. I hope you have a fabulous writing day. I would really take a look at this book to see how she handles the point of view and how she handles narrative distance as well when she works to point of view. And Shopee, I just want to thank you for being with us and spending time and we'll get you back to your fat-cheeked uh, baby. Thank you, Michelle.